<laughs> okay, welcome to Hammer Factor episode 16. This is the, uh, I don't know, I don't know what you guys, like I brought a microphone on and you guys can't stop talking in radio voice. I mean, what's going on there? Been relentless. As usual, we used up everything funny we have to say before we started recording. <laughs> okay, Hammer Factor episode 16. We missed a week. Sorry about that. Um, I was on a trip to California and couldn't get the job done. So we're back this week. We got a good show. We got Erin Savage, who is our special guest. She is works for Appalachian um, Voices, which uh, does a lot of environmental work in West Virginia and Virginia, and basically all over the southeast as far as stream flow. We got some gossip about Outdoor Retailer Show and some other things. But uh, before we get going, let me introduce Whitewater Legend, North Fork Champion, Policy Council for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. How you doing, Lewis? Doing great. How's the winter going out there, man? Is you guys thawing out at all? Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Actually, I uh, rode my bike yesterday which was exciting. I had to drive an hour and a half through a snowstorm, and then it was hammering snow once we got there. But, uh, <laughs> Sounds nice. It was worth it. It was still really good. Um, well, little white's over four feet. It's all happening. Well, the green is still low. We still haven't had any rain, and it's 75 degrees here in Asheville today. So anyway, we digress. Also, on the show, white water cowboy <laughs> – Whitewater radio guy. (laughs) Let's hear the big radio guy voice. John Weld. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) John Grace coming at you. 75 degrees this morning in Asheville. We got a wonderful show for you today. Coming up next, highlights of the Outdoor Retailer Show. Uh, And at 12 o'clock, we're taking your requests. (laughs) This is what I've been hearing for the past hour. From Madonna. (laughs) Two from from Duran Duran. Uh, Caller number four gets a chance to win a 204 bed shaft paddle, left hand control. Uh, it's always left hand control. All right. Hate to derail you there, but uh, right. let's get right into some viewer mail here. Our viewers, uh, we'll see what they, if they, you know, maybe we'll just do a comedy show sometime and see how that goes. But That wouldn't be good. Um, Right now, we're going to get into some viewer mail. We got uh, this comes to us from Jeff Kelly. We always appreciate the viewer mail, so thanks for sending us in, Jeff. And, and I'm going to throw this out at you, Weld, because it's a, yes. addressed to you. Mm. Uh, Jeff says, "Awesome podcast. Look forward to it every week." As a paddler, I really appreciate the insights. Here is to 500 more episodes. I do have a viewer mail question, John Weld. I've heard conflicting opinions about treating your dry top dry suit gaskets with 303 Aerospace Protector. Some say go for it, and others say don't do it. Your thoughts? My thoughts. Well, of course, we looked into this as well, since we're in the business of making things with latex gaskets. Um, a little background. Most, if not all, of the manufacturers of dryware and paddle sports get their gaskets from one company. It's a company in England called Precision Dippings. There are a couple of smaller ones we can fill in orders uh, with, but essentially we get our gaskets from that one company. So, uh, you know, for consumers out there, when you start trying on dry tops and you think there is a difference between one gasket or another, chances are they came from the same place or the same two places. So just a little something to keep in mind. Uh, We called Precision Dippings years ago and asked them what they thought about it, um, and they had actually done tests in their factory with different protectants. Their conclusion at the time was that nothing seemed to really do anything or make any improvements over not treating your gaskets at all. Uh, okay. They, uh, you know, I should probably follow up on that because it's been probably like five or six years since we had that discussion, but that was their opinion at the time. Um, they are also clear to point out this is not a scientific study, at least the way that it was described to me. You know, they weren't, it wasn't like in every possible condition, that was, but that was their impression. Uh, one thing I think that we've noticed is that sunscreen seems to do a number on gaskets, particularly sunscreen with zinc in it, because zinc is a copper alloy, and copper and latex do not get along, from what we can tell. Um, so I think when you see neck gaskets break down sooner than anything else, is because you have sunscreen from your your neck and your face getting down into the gasket. Like, 
So I think that's that's our current stance on it. I, maybe I should do a little uh, follow up with Precision Dippings and see if they've changed their attitude on that. Um, but if they're to be to believed, save your money and just uh, keep sunscreen off the gaskets. There you there go. go. What about like I don't ever dry my gear out. I just leave it wadded up in my boat. Is that a yeah. good thing? Well, you, you mean we've nowadays we've come to understand that kayakers treat their gear very poorly. And we kind of have to design around it. You know, and the downside for that is that consumers pay a lot for gear and it's not very breathable um, because we kind of anticipate people not taking care of their gear. Um, but the big thing is with a dry suit is keep dirt out of the inside because more often than not, the real wear in a suit comes from dirt, like traveling in with your socks or your shirt or your pants or whatever, and then dropping down in the booties or settling in your knees or your butt and grinding through the laminate from the inside out. That's uh-huh. where we see most damage. Very, we do see tears from the outside, of course, but not nearly as, as they're not nearly as prevalent as damage from the from the inside. And then do not let your suit get moldy. That's just just not good. Um, but I'll be honest, we have gone, we have go, come so far in terms of designing dryer wear for boaters who insist on packing their gear wet and stuffing in their trunk for two weeks at a time or letting it freeze solid out in their yard and then cracking it and putting it back on again. So we're trying to meet you halfway here. <laughs> well, I'm really hard on, on my gear, but it seems to keep working. So yeah, um, that's good. Um, all right. Well, thanks for that, Jeff Kelly. Um, I, you know, I've, uh, I'm not sure I've ever used, 303 on any of my gaskets ever and i i feel like i get at least a few years out of them so i don't know risk yeah, gaskets risk, risk gaskets seem to last forever uh neck gaskets seem to be the first thing to go um and latex booties are somewhere in the middle all right well moving on thanks jeff kelly that's a good one anytime you want to send us some viewer mail we love it we've got several others from mike gallimore and tim watkins and joe rando and uh we respond back and we'll we'll do our best to keep up with those appreciated guys um now let's go to the news we got uh some news out of the outdoor retailer show um and a lot of fronts and a lot of fronts what do you what do you got here well, so, I mean, maybe we should start back up for people who don't follow the minutia of outdoor retailer and outdoor industry association and everything. But, uh, you know, for a long time, I think there's been sort of a, a level of discontent with some folks in the outdoor industry about having this show in Utah when Utah has been ground zero for so many really bad ideas on public lands. I mean, they're really sort of the birthplace of this movement to try to take over the federal public lands. Um, and recently there's been, you know, a lot of bad ideas coming out of Utah and a lot of threats to this new, uh, Bears Ears National Monument that President Obama designated at the end of last year, which is, I mean, there's some good kind of class two, uh, desert multi-days that are protected with the national monument and also some like really, really, really iconic climbing areas like Indian Creek is, uh, in Bears national monument. And, uh, governor Herbert from Utah has been kind of leading the charge in lobbying the new administration to try to rescind this national monument designation, which is something that is of dubious legality and you know, would certainly be litigated if he tried to do it. What's the stated reason for him doing that? Like, what's his official reason for for making those kinds of moves? Like, what's the agenda? Uh, the agenda is that, that you know the president has the authority under the Antiquities Act to designate national monuments, and he can just designate a national monument. Like that's, and that takes existing public land presumably that's being managed for multiple use and it'll be now managed with more emphasis on, you know, protecting kind of the objects of interest under the Antiquities Act. So that would be like, you know, a ton of really important Native American cultural sites, but also conservation values and recreation. So it's taking places that were just sort of BLM land and now they're managed for this higher level of protection. And so there's a lot of concern that that's going to undercut 
grazing and oil and gas development, the your existing grazing permits are all grandfathered in, so it doesn't really affect anybody's existing grazing rights. Um, I think it would uh, limit oil and gas development, which, you know, from our perspective is a good thing. But, you know, I think there's sort of, you know, some of it is that Herbert and the Utah delegation just don't want to see these places protected. They want to see extractive industry having a much bigger seat at the table and how these public lands are managed. And part of it, I think, is just sort of this state's rights uh, ethos, and they just don't like the idea of the federal government, and in particular, the president sort of unilaterally having the ability to change management prescriptions on public lands. But it's worth pointing out that these are not, this does not affect any private landowners. It doesn't affect land that belongs to the state of Utah. It's national public lands that belong to all Americans. And, you know, the president has the authority to do this. The Antiquities Act goes back more than 100 years. It was signed by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It was been used by presidents of both parties to protect, you know, really iconic places. Black Canyon of the Gunnison is now a national park. That was that started as a national monument. Um, Grand Teton and uh, what else? What are some other examples? Um, I don't know. Basically, a lot of national parks were originally national monuments, and you know they were sort of redesignated down the road. But it's a really important bedrock conservation tool that you know the congressional delegation from Utah and their governor doesn't like, and the outdoor industry has sort of had enough of these guys threatening public lands. So the way I understand it is there was rumblings behind the scene with the outdoor industry and some of the, a lot of the brands that, that go there and, uh, and do business. And, and just, I, I believe we've talked about this in the past. It is a huge show. I don't know how many thousands of dollars and Thousands of people come there over the course of I, that week. I'm sure the people like are out. Fifty million, like forty something, forty or forty-five yeah. million dollars a year that gets you know, direct economic impact from outdoor retailer. I know yeah. we've we talked about it before, but just so people out there who maybe didn't hear this, outdoor retailer is a trade show. Um, for the outdoor industry, which encompasses everything from, well, it used to encompass everything from kayaking to hiking to climbing, climbing. camping. Uh, it would include brands like Patagonia, North Face, Arcteryx, of course, all the boat companies, tons of stand-up paddleboard companies, uh, sock companies, any big outdoor apparel company you can imagine, Prana, all that would go to these shows. And it's a it's a venue for retailers that retailers that sell this gear to go to this trade show and see upcoming products and they did one during the summer in salt lake city and they did one during the winter and the winter show of course is geared towards skiing gear and the summer show is geared towards you know sort of multi-season or summer sports um and so you know so the outdoor industry uh would go every year and you know utah has been a you know is in many ways a good place to have a show because it can hold all these people and but the contradiction of course is the, the governor is uh and just, i guess general utah in, in general has not been like the most friendly state towards outdoor industry would you say that's true i mean that's what i'm yes. hearing it, yeah absolutely sorry go ahead and so and so patagonia uh about two three weeks ago um said they weren't going um because of this bear's ear i guess among other things but bear's ear was the big thing which is basically like you know, the J.C. Penny pulling out of the shopping mall or whatever the equivalent is today of that, uh, you know, and once that happens, it starts to collapse. So I think right away after that, um, the people who put on the show uh, did a, ask for an RFP a request for a proposal for a new venue for the show. Um, and, and I think there's some people questioning as to why this didn't happen sooner. But I think the real thing, I mean, what people have to understand, this is a huge show and it's very hard to move. And not everybody could just pick up and plop down yeah, you know, I mean, that kind of space and that kind of hotel accommodations overnight. You know what I I'm mean? I'm amazed that it's going to move as quickly as it sounds like it's going to. I mean, I think that it's, you know, Outdoor Industry Association who puts on the trade show. It's kind of the trade group for outdoor, you know, outdoor businesses. They're great partners at Outdoor Alliance. They 
do a ton of really good work on public land stuff. And, you know, I put those guys in a really hard position when, you know, some of the big brands decided that they really were going to put their foot down on this immediately because like John was saying, moving the trade show is, is really, really hard. And, you know, it's tough. It's hard to say what's going to happen in Utah once this thing pulls out. I mean, it would be great to see a big backlash from voters in Utah mm-hmm. for sure. Well, you know, and, and to add a little bit more story to this, there was, you know, Patagonia said they were leaving. There was this momentum um, that was pulling out. But before it actually happened, and correct me if I'm wrong or, or somebody knows more on this, but this a letter came uh, to the from the Outdoor Industry Association from the actual trade show that said there was a conference call between the governor and – um, one of the leading legislators that were kind of making this push to get rid of Bears Ear and whatever. And there was a conference call between them to try and reconcile the differences and basically it went nowhere. That's right. That, that's, that's what happened. And then once that happened, then it was official. The show was looking for other venues and the process began. So I guess kind of the question is what happens this year? Well, they're, yeah. they're gonna be, they'll be there this summer. <clears throat> Um, is Patagonia still not attending? Is that still and Arcteryx? Yeah. I think pulled out as well, right? I mean, yeah, the, and, the latest. And North Face is uh, bringing their presence way down and spending the money that they were going to spend on basically trying to fight these causes of of uh, you know basically battle what's happening in Utah. And so, just to put this in perspective, it's that the outdoor retailer show has been in Salt Lake City for twenty years, right? Mm-hmm. And so you just average over the course, course, yeah, yeah, maybe more. And if it's a $50 million show, you do the math there, you're looking at a billion dollars of economic activity over the course of that show into that city. That's not a small number. That's just for summer show. There's a winter show there too. That's true. So this is a big, this is a big, this is a big thing we're watching. I mean, I know I've been going to that show since 2001. You know, we've put on the canoe and kayak awards every year for the past seven years now. And, uh, you know, premiered movies out there and did all kinds of things. And, uh, it's a big deal for it to be leaving. So, yeah. I mean, at the same time, you know, I think it's really, it's good to see the industry kind of coming together around protecting public lands. It's like, these are big, important issues. And these are things that people have been talking about for a long time. And it's not, you know, this isn't moving just on a whim. It's like, I think everything kind of coalesced very rapidly here at the end, but it's, it's exciting to see, folks in the outdoor industry taking these threats seriously and, you know, becoming more engaged in public lands policy because it's, it's important. And, you know, having the industry find its voice is going to make a big difference. So it's, it's good to see, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's tough that this is kind of the, I don't know, this first like beginning, like cataclysm almost, but it's, it's good. And I, you know, I think that hopefully it's going to well, I think, be the first. I mean, I think you I mean, here's the weird thing about it, I think, is that so on one hand, I mean, you have to be you have to be proud at the economic clout that we have that we throw around. You know, I mean, this there's no question that Utah will feel this right. This is not like, a, a, you know, a, a paddle sports demo day, you know, on a lake somewhere. <laughs> this is a big, big financial deal. On the other hand, I've talked to several people in the industry and. People, manufacturers in general, have been grumbling about outdoor retailer for many years. Um, and retailers have been grumbling about it as well, but manufacturers especially. Um, not because it's in Utah, but because it's expensive. Retailer participation is, is dwindling. The old concept of a retailer going to the show, taking a preseason, and things working on that arrangement are really starting to slip. Where retailers are becoming more lean in terms of their inventory. The role this the show plays for years has been in question. I think it's safe to say, and it's expensive. I mean, IR alone, we're a teeny company. Relatively speaking, we, it costs our budget for outdoor retailers between twelve and fifteen thousand dollars. The booth alone is eight, between eight and nine grand, just for the floor space, just for this before we build a booth or anything else. We have to fly pe- people out there. And what's happening now is I'm talking to people about this, and they're saying, well, you know, Patagonia and Arcteryx are pulling out. We're going to pull out too. And, you know, their official line is for solidarity with environmental cause. But the real word is they've been looking for an excuse to do it for years and they finally got one, Interesting. you know, 
Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, they've moved the show ahead. And now Paddle Sports this year has decided to get out as well. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 where this, the nexus is between this industry talk and everyday consumer is that I think this is really reflective on the very rapidly changing landscape for retail in this country, at least for, you know, in this, in this case, outdoor retailers. Um, you, you, this is, this is going to have a big effect on, on how products are sold within stores and how manufacturers engage their, their retailers for sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been, it's been sort of floated around as a little bit of a tangent to this kind of broader discussion about moving out to a retailer. But I think that this is kind of sparking some reconsideration about what out to retailer should look like because, you know, there are, there's becoming more and more of this whole sort of satellite of cons- uh, conservation group meetings, like around outdoor retailer. Like I, you know, I've been going the last few years and we have, you know, a lot going on and working more closely with the outdoor industry on conservation issues and public lands issues. And, you know, I think there is a role for that, for some sort of big industry wide gathering, but it is happening at the same time as this shift in, you know, what retail looks like and, you know, how that shakes out going forward now. This definitely seems like kind of an open question. <clears throat> I don't know. It's definitely something to follow. And, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, do you feel like you get anything the, out of being the, the there? Twi- besides, do you feel like you get stuff out of being well, there besides, like, selling I mean, here's, stuff? I mean, here's the thing. Seasons? Here's the thing. We didn't really get into this, you know, and I'm not sure how much time we devote to the subject, but the other thing that's happening is out to retailer before all this went down this year, it's talking about moving the show to June from, from middle of August or the beginning of August to the end of June, uh, under the pressure of manufacturers who really wanted to get the show in sync with production. The fact is, is that, you know, like IR is making 2018 products right now, like 2018 products are ordered for our company as well as everybody else in this business. Um, the idea that we go to a trade show in August and that has any effect in what we're ordering or what's what we're going to have available for retailers is not simply true at all. Uh, by the time we get to out to retailer in August, the stuff is literally on a boat coming here. Um, and we're just meeting people and saying hi. Moving it to June would at least give manufacturers the ability to at least change sizes or, or tweak distribution of sizes, something like that. It makes some cha- change in their in their production to accommodate the needs. For some reason, when the when the show moved to June, paddle sports man, retailers in particular were like, "We're not going," and manufacturers saying, "We're not going either," um, which to me was was confusing. I, I don't know. I mean, what's the difference between August and June? And retailers would say, "Well, we don't. It's too early. We don't know what we're going to need for the season." Well, we don't either. But we've made this stuff, you know, a year ahead of time. We had to take a guess, you know, and this is in your best interest. But and to answer your question, Louis, yeah, we did. I mean. You know, we were part of a larger community at that show. You know, um, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was always a challenge to paddle sports to to show up there and 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 accept the challenge to terms of of being a real outdoor company. You know, um, and take for example Astral, who's really stepped up and started making shoes that are really outside of paddle sports gear. You know, or Teva, who did this years ago. Um, out to retail is a perfect venue for a company to grow outside of kayaking. But now we're talking moving paddle sports into its own separate show outside of retail, out to retailer in Madison, Wisconsin at the end of August, beginning of September, which in my opinion is just a step back. It's just a step back. It's taking paddle sports and putting it in the category of like windsurfing or some other orphan sport. That's going to be, you know, just small. And we're, you know, it's be very comfortable space for manufacturers manufacturers do exactly the same thing year after year after year after year and not feel okay. challenged or inspired to innovate in any way shape or form and we're being disconnected from our industry it stinks for us because we've had to commit to not going to the show early this year and you know we have 20 years of story there which means we have a great position in that show our booth space is second to none and that's going to be gone now that we're not going there anymore so if we ever come up with a new product uh, that's outside of paddle sports and going to go back to the show. We're going to be back out in the tents, which is where we were the first year we went and we got hit by the tornado. Um, so I don't know. It's a long story. It's a complicated one. And it represents a lot of different facets of what's happening in paddle sports right now in many different ways. So yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. God, I'm not sure. I'm, I hope consumers out there find it as, as interesting. So is, are all of the paddle sports companies leaving OR and mass now for this new trade show or is it? Well, well I think- bag. 
paddle sports is a broad subject that in, at this point includes SUP and includes well, whitewater you know, brands. Let's say. I think whitewater brands by and large have decided that at some point between now and 2018, they will stop going to outdoor retailer and they will, we will reconvene at this paddle sport show in September, and August, the paddle sport show is being, being organized by Sutton Bacon. who used to work at NFC and a guy named Darren Bush, who runs a bigger retailer in uh, Wisconsin, in Madison called Rutabaga. I'd love to have one of those guys, has come on and explain their stance on this. And there has been a sort of an ad hoc paddle sports manufacturer committee thrown together representing paddle sports brands to decide what we're going to do as an industry. Um, and it seems like most people are getting out of like Confluence, as my understanding, is not going out to retailer this year, which is a big deal. They're certainly one of the biggest paddle sports brands out there, um, which would mean there's really no reason for any of us to go uh, because we're not going to get our core stores to go if Confluence isn't there. Yeah, you know, They're going to be like, we're going to save our money. Yeah, and you know, just to put this in perspective, some people may be asking, "Well, why don't you go to one show and go to the other?" But you know, for a small company like IR, or for a small retailer, there's just no budget for it. I mean, you're talking about fifteen thousand dollars going out there. I mean, right. what's that? Twenty percent of your marketing budget or something for the year? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, we can't. We can't. Go, we can't go. We can't spend fifteen grand and see ten stores. Yeah. You know what I mean? That just doesn't. It doesn't economically make any sense. You know. Well, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Um, I, I, I will try to get Sutton or Darren on, uh, on the show and we'll dig into, especially the paddle sports, um, show more. And, uh, one, one thing I want to throw out there is something that's come up a few times is this, uh, concept of putting together sort of, a um, an outdoor industry tax that goes towards funding public lands from the sale of goods and services or, uh, you know, from the sale of goods, similar to the way, uh, you know, um, hook and tackle goes to po- to help fund game lands and stocking of fish and things like that. Have you guys heard any of this? And what's your opinion on that? I think we should have license plates on every single wetwater kayak out there. <laughs> and they, uh, a government agency that would administer those and maintain that paperwork. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, we pay user fees a little yak here, you know. Um, I mean, that's that's one way that that that's being, and that money does not go back to to the Ohio State Park. It goes to you know the entire state park budget. Making sure that fracking permits are uh, processed in a timely fashion. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, I've seen some talk about that, and there's just so many layers to that and so many different ways that people recreate and where they recreate and how you divvy it. It's just a very complicated um, – it's a very complicated thing, and I like what you're talking about. You know, you pay for the access to an individual place rather than a broader – Oh, man, scope, don't say that. You know, scope. I mean, sometimes you have to. I mean, look at Green River Access Fund. If we didn't rent a parking lot, we wouldn't be able to go kayak in there. You know, there's just no place to put in. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe that's what happens when you when you don't have enough public lands, you know? It's yeah, like, you know, that's what happens with state parks a lot of the times. Is there's way more user fees or, you know, where you guys are looking at, there's just no public access. So you guys have to rent someplace for people to park, you know? It's like... Yeah, I mean, that's that's the only choice that we have. And so another thing we run into here at the Green, and I'm just speaking of the Green because I know the situation a little more than most places, is that it's uh, NC Wildlife land. So it is public land that's open and access to anybody but managed specifically for hunting and fishing. And they, and when I've talked to the land managers there, while a huge amount of their funding comes from just the general fund, and tax dollars, there is some, there is quite a bit of money that comes from uh, this sale of firearms and ammo and tackle and things like that, as well as licensing licenses to go hunt. So it kind of is tricky when we're asking them to build us a parking lot or put something in there, but we're not putting in as much as the hunting and fishing community, although that is changing because. Anyway, it's a much longer topic, but it's something to think about, you know, like as uh, as the outdoor industry becomes more vested and is a and picks and chooses where it spends its money. I'm going off on a tangent with this, so I'll leave it there. It is but, a big topic and it's worth 
it's not something I've given a ton of consideration to, but you know, it is an idea that sort of gets floated every once in a while. That I mean, well, in Ohio, not... but in Ohio, you really do have to. I mean, theoretically, you're supposed to put a serial number on your boat, right? And yeah, presumably, I mean, you pay for that. That license in the state of Ohio. There are yeah, a few I mean, places I've, like that. Like, I've seen like boats coming from Ohio, like wetwater cocks with Ohio with a serial number written on the side of them. I don't know how many people actually pay attention to that, but I think to put on a certain waterway in Ohio, you have to have a number on your boat. They're talking about doing that in Oregon right now. There's uh, invasive species permits that you need in Oregon and in Idaho. Uh, but I think it's only if your boat's longer than 10 and a half feet. Mm. But Uh-oh. I don't know. Again, this is a much bigger, <laughs> a much bigger conversation, but... <laughs> I don't know. My feeling about it is like when you show me an example of a whitewater kayak, just one ever transporting a quagga mussel or whatever it is they're trying to thwart, then we can talk about, you know, invasive species permits. It's like, we, you know, we if you the water, it's one thing, but like your kayak, like, like there's not like barnacles on the, on the bottom of the boat, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm dubious. I want to see the science. Anyway. So, no outdoor retailer for you, Mr. Weld. So it looks like it. That's crazy. I can't believe I'm saying that. What what are you what are you gonna do now all summer? Go I think I think this is my summer Cali. Have you ever been kayaking in California? No, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, there was an opportunity. I had a window, you know, where I was doing nothing but kayaking, you know, two hundred and fifty days a year for seven or eight years, but no one was really paddling in Cali back then. You know, you had your Lars Holbecks and whatnot, kind of beatering down these rivers and these twelve and a half foot. (laughs) Well, they were phenomenal boaters, but you know, I mean, you know, they were doing like the Ohio Burning Man off of waterfalls and these long fiberglass boats and doing a lot of portages and stuff like that. But they weren't selling it as the destination. Um. Uh, um, you know, it was it was an obscure thing at that time. What's that? Those are fighting words out here, man. Well, you have to understand, we were doing the same thing out east. <laughs> I mean, no shame there. You know, I mean, I'll show you some pictures of me running Great Falls in 1982 or something in my my Mustang. We looked the same way. I tell you, but there what, wasn't if you, like if you look that? at the if you look at the California guidebook and read the. You know, but the that's the and the stories and the water levels those guys were running these rivers no, at. I know, I know, but we had no we had no perspective on that in 1991. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, real, totally. We just had no perspective on that, you know? And so it wasn't until, like, the late 90s, early 2000s where Cali started to blow up. And you started to see the pictures. And the internet was around. You started to see videos. And, and then I was like, oh, my God, that's a paradise like kayaking. But by then, the peak season was always during my peak season. You know, without the retailer, especially because it's very hard to get ready for that show every year. Um, it just was never a good time to leave. But now, so what, what's the first run I need to do in California? And I want to do High Sierras. I want to go. Just skip everything else. Just go right to Middle Kings. I've been itching to that river forever because I want the hike. I want the multi-day. I want it to be a little rude and nasty. I want people to be kind of bitching and complaining. <laughs> right? I'm going to have to my take counterpoint on Middle Kings. What? Okay. Lewis, you're losing credibility. I know. I know. I got. I think I need to go back and try it again. But Why well, was your take on Kings. it? So it was, I went, I left the day after I took the bar exam. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I couldn't go any earlier. And the water was dropping fast, and it was, I would say, quite a bit too low when we were there. I think we started hiking at maybe like 1,200, and I think it was something like 750 by the time we took off. Mm. And it was, I thought it was manky. And, you know, there's a hiking trail along the entire run, with the exception of the bottom nine. And, you know, we saw a lot of hikers. And it just like, I felt like I didn't quite get that feeling like you get where you are in a place that only a class five kayaker will ever get to see. And I felt like for the amount of work and for the whitewater not feeling that great, I think maybe on account of low water, I was a little, uh, it wasn't all I dreamed it would be, but I think I need to go back at high water and give it another shake. So where would you you send Mr. Weld? My favorite Cali run is Fantasy. Um, 
Grace is looking a little dubious. Dude, fantasy how can you be dubious about fantasy? Fantasy is like my all-time top three for sure. Fantasy's great. I mean, you know, it's it's great. <laughs> but just not not enough <laughs> suffering for you guys, probably. No, it, it's 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 good. I mean, you you know, you can't complain. It's it is really good, but I don't know. You put it on a road and you paddle across the reservoir at the bottom and you only drop like 3,000 feet on the whole run. And I mean, there are some phenomenal gorges in there and it's incredible. And you can't diss any of the high Sierra runs. No, I agree. Know? So I agree. I'm like, I'm not poo-pooing milk games. I just, yeah, my personal I, experience there was not all I imagined it would be. But my, how, my many, how, many days were, how many days were in the water, Lewis, on the middle kinks? I think five. That's pretty, sounds pretty typical, right? Yeah. Did you got, did you go all the way to the bottom or did you hike out of Yucca? Down to Yucca, which is I would never ever do again. Yeah, see, you missed a whole good day of whitewater. Anyway, if you, get, if you start hiking around 1600 CFS, that's when you want to hike in. In my opinion, you drop 7,500 vertical feet, which is the most you can drop in one single span of river in the United States and the, con- the whole United States. And you can literally make a handful of portages on that whole run, and you have. Big slides, waterfalls, canyons. But I can see if you're out there. I was out there at low water this year, and there were definitely some sections that did not clean up nicely. So I can kind of see what you're talking about. But I've never seen hikers in there or ever had the feeling that I was around people. So it's number. It's it's my favorite, hands down. I have to say yeah. that, that Middle Kings in a day, to me, stands up as one of the most savage things anybody's ever done in kayaking. I have yeah. to express my admiration for that. That, is that would be badass. John Grace, Daniel Delavern, and is that it? It was just me and Hillicky on that one. Oh, Hillicky. Sorry. <clears throat> but that was a big day. We can talk about that on some <laughs> show. <laughs> because that was a big day. That was a big day. Yeah. But your ears are popping. You're dropping so fast, man. Yeah. I mean, we literally, there was so much mad bombing. We never got out of our boats and scouted a single rapid. If we got out, it was a portage. So we knew the places we got out, we got out eight times, portage eight rapids, and every other time it was just like nods and stares. Anyway, I'm just glad we made it. Um, we'll talk about that at a, at a later time, but we're kind of moving on with the show here, and let's get to our is – is there anything else we want to add about California? Oh. There is something we need to add about California. I just got back from there, and the snow is the deepest I've ever seen it in my life. So typically, you'll run Middle Kings around the 4th of July. It won't be I'm thinking like August – no, October 15th. (laughs) My birthday is October 23rd. That would be a great birthday trip. (laughs) It really may not go until like the middle of August this year. I mean it could be like bumping into monsoon season out there. So – well, do you come out and we could do back-to-back Middle Kings to Keene? What's the boat? (sighs) What's the boat? Does any old thing? Matter. Okay. All right. <laughs> Talking about boats, and we'll have to bring Mr. Robert Pearson on. He heard our show, and I guess I didn't give the Machno a fair shake in a previous right. show. That's right. And so he He's called. So he. Fun. Yeah, we'll get him on. But anyway, he he called me out, sent me a personal text, and basically was like, "Don't knock it till you try it." And so I'm going to get. A Matno and Pilot this weekend, and I'll give you guys an official review. I'm actually pretty keen to try it as well. Me and uh, yeah, Benny paddled it yesterday, and he was was pretty high on it. He said it was pretty good. Yeah, I'm so. just not going to paddle it and just trash talk it. <laughs> I, I think I, I think he took specific off, off, offense to me calling it the descent of the 2000s or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a low blow. Did he? Did you have anything to do? My- did you design that boat? Grace is is critiquing boats based on what the deck looks like. Like anytime, <laughs> anytime there's a new kayak design, yeah. it's a picture gets posted on the internet where you can't see the hull, which yeah. is like at that point, it, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And somebody will like post on boater talk that it looks like a, a nomad, and then <laughs> like everybody's gonna be like, oh, like there's no progression there at all. It looks like a nomad. And, like you can't even see the hull. Like. <laughs> All I need to see is the cockpit shape to know where I stand on that boat because I'm willing to pay dearly for that cockpit. (laughs) 
My, my skirt leaks. That's <laughs> all I'm here. Right. It looks like a descent in that it's nine feet long and made out of polyethylene, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, see, now, now I'm going to send Robert your way. You hear this, Robert? I'm giving it a fair shake. So, anyway, we digress. We'll, we'll hear about the, more about the Mac now uh, next week. Um, yeah. So what guests we are we going to do paddle this? this weekend? We can talk about it next week. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll give it a run down the green at four and a half inches or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> super depressing. All right, now let's move on to. So we're going to do Aaron Savage this week. We're going to do we we got Corin Addison next week, which will be exciting. Um, we have a lot of good questions for Corin, but this week we're going to do Aaron Savage. And you may not know who Aaron Savage is, but she is a southeast. Um, paddler, mountain biker, general all-around outdoor athlete. We put on this event called the Silverback where you have to uh, do a trail run, a mountain bike ride, and run the green, and she wins it every year. She is a graduate of Yale University, works for Appalachian Voices, and is a uh, all about stream protection. So let's see if we can get Aaron on the line here. That's pretty good credentials. It's like, what have you... What are you doing with your life? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to run the white salmon today. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, now, that, <laughs> now that we're all intimidated, let's get Aaron on the phone. Right. <laughs> uh, hey. Aaron, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Aaron. Welcome to the Hammer Factor. Thanks. Well, Aaron, you are on uh, the show here with Lewis Geltman and John Weld and myself. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. So, Aaron, let's start off. Uh, I did a brief introduction of some of your credentials. Let's, wh- where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from Washington State, but I live in Mills River, North Carolina now. Yeah, and you recently just bought a house out there, eh? I did. Well, so that's killer. And then when did you get into kayaking? Were you into kayaking when you were out in Washington? or? No, unfortunately I wasn't. I didn't get into kayaking until right after I graduated from college. I was actually on a trip to Uganda, and I started kayaking there. And then uh, you know, really got into it once I got back to the States and went to grad school on the East Coast. And where'd you go to grad school? I went to the Yale School of Forestry in Connecticut. Very cool. Can you tell us about the Yale School of Forestry? I feel like this has (laughs) been like a constant source of fascination for me. I want to know more about forestry, and I want to know why the premier forestry school is in Connecticut. Uh, Good question. Um, Well, I'm I'm a little rusty on my Yale history, but uh, the school has had a forestry school for quite a while and it's, it's really the school of forestry and environmental studies now um and i think that having a forestry school used to be much more common uh a long long time ago harvard actually had a forestry school as well but a hurricane blew down their school forest and skipped yales and so harvard got rid of their forestry school after they no longer had a forest and wow. yale survived <laughs> Very Thoreauian, you know, like a sort of a Walden Pond kind of a mentality. Right. Right. And then, uh, and so then you graduated school, and then what brought you down to the Southeast? Well, I graduated in 2010, and so nobody was getting any jobs then, including me. Uh, So I decided that as long as I was on the East Coast, I should give the Southeast a try. So I moved to Asheville without a job and basically just waited tables and went kayaking and uh, harassed. You're just just being Asheville, like an Asheville citizen. Exactly. I was was spitting right in. (laughs) Jesus, Harold. Did you get like a bongo or what happened? You get into town. <laughs> I'm so, I'm actually, I'm busting on Grace specifically here, not not you. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, so <laughs> eventually, I decided I needed a, a real job, so I started kind of harassing Appalachian voices until they agreed to hire me. And seven years later, I'm still there. What's Appalachian, What's Appalachian voices? 
So Appalachian Voices is a regional nonprofit. They're based out of Boone, North Carolina, uh, but they also have offices in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Norton, Virginia. And we work on a number of environmental and community issues around the Southeast. And the one that I really focus on is mountaintop removal coal mining. Uh, but we also work on economic is- issues, energy efficiency, coal ash issues in North Carolina, basically whatever is uh, you know, most demanding of our attention at the time. So last week on the podcast, we were talking a bunch about the uh, Congressional Review Act vote on BLM's new planning regs. But mm-hmm. I know that you guys are probably looking or you did just have to... Uh, deal with a similar loss to what we're hoping to avoid, I guess, next week. But do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the CRA vote and the street protection rule? Is that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so just to give you guys a bit of background, the stream protection rule was an updated rule um, that the Office of Surface Mining, Reclamation, and Enforcement was working on during the Obama administration. Uh, And the rule would have updated a rule called the Stream Buffer Zone Rule that is from 1983. So it's a 34-year-old rule at this point. Um, And that all falls under SMACRA, which is the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. Um, So that's a law that, that has been in place for years, is still in place now. And basically, the stream protection rule was an, an effort to um, update regulations under that law to bring them up to current standards in terms of scientific understanding and how the industry, the coal industry, operates these days. So my organization had been working on this rule, basically um, trying to show support for it, engaging in public process around rulemaking, so on and so forth, for essentially the last seven years or so. Um, And we were really pushing to have the rule finalized, and it was finalized. But because of the timing, it getting finalized right at the end of the last administration, it opened up the rule to threat from the Congressional Review Act, which was, until this point, a little-used law that allows Congress to get rid of rules issued by uh, the executive branch. Um, and basically, it's, it's a big timing issue because it only really makes sense to do when you're switching between two presidents, because otherwise the president could just veto the CRA. But since we now have Trump, we were pretty sure that wasn't going to happen. And sure enough, we were right. And just to uh, this, just this to back up for a second. Exactly like the BLM thing that you were talking about last week. Exact same process, but just to back up for a second, I feel like that was a really good description, but what we're talking about is ripping the tops off mountains and dumping them into rivers, right? Yes. So this is what this rule is all about or was all about was, and you can maybe just explain that or, you know, what this is specifically trying to stop in a way that's... Sure. Super basic for us. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So we mine coal in this country in a number of different regions. And the the region sort of dictates how that process occurs. So, for example, in the West where they mine coal, they're using like big open pit mines. They have a little bit flatter topography, big open spaces. But here in the Southeast, uh, specifically in Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, and West Virginia, the terrain is really, uh, really varied. So, so it's very steep, and you have kind of small mountains uh, with, with coal seams throughout those mountains. So picture kind of a, a layer cake of a mountain, and uh, the little frosting layers are your coal, and you're trying to get down to that coal in the most economically viable way. Um, and as you know, the, the coal runs out in this area because it's, it's been being mined here for a long time, the most, the thinnest and hardest to access seams are left behind. And the, the easiest and cheapest way to get them or to get to them is to use heavy explosives and literally blow off the tops of the mountains to uncover the coal below. And the side consequence of that is it leaves a lot of overburden, which is basically 
everything else, uh, all the other rock layers, to some extent the soil layers, and they need to do something with that because once you've blown it up, you can kind of put it back, but it's pretty hard and it's pretty expensive and, and the volume tends to increase a lot because you've, you've blown it up. So what they do is they essentially push it over the side of the, the mountains into the valleys below and they cover up the streams, uh, the headwater streams, and that has a lot of downstream consequence within the watershed. So, so that's mountaintop removal. Yeah, go ahead. And so I, the stream protection rule was basically meant to keep all this debris from ending up in the rivers, in the streams, correct? Right. That that was the hope. And to some extent, the 83 rule was supposed to do that as well. But in practice, it's it's not enforced in that manner. Okay. So basically, and, and this is a, we're talking about a midnight rule passed by the Obama administration at the last moment that uh <laughs> just intended to steal your job john yeah exactly from the obama administration <laughs> no in all seriousness aaron the 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 big uh the big to do about this is it's a job killer um that uh that these regulations are basically going to put people out of miners out of work what is uh what are your thoughts on that position yeah um well you know my major thought on that is that Coal production across the country has been decreasing for a number of years now, uh, and mountaintop removal production, surface mine production in the southeast, has been decreasing at a, a at a really high rate just over the last few years. So, mountaintop removal production hit a high around 2008. So, during the Obama administration, and it's slowly declined since then, even without the stream protection rule being in place. And that was largely, almost completely due to competition from cheap natural gas. And in recent years, there's been more competition from renewables as well. So essentially, central Appalachian coal can't compete in the free market at this point. Uh, so well, to blame the stream protection rule is to uh, <laughs> kind of jump the gun or, or ignore what's already happening now. Yep, I'll tend to agree with that. And, you know, I know some people within the Duke Energy um, company, and there are several plants, just like the one here in Asheville, that's getting shut down and turning to natural gas. So every one of those coal yep. plants that shuts down and moves to natural gas, that's less demand. It's not – it doesn't have anything to do with regulations. No, you know, nobody's right. buying it. So Right. Interesting. Interesting failed argument. So um, – Louis, do you have anything else on that one? Because I got a couple other questions. No, I mean, I guess I was just going to ask you guys what you know what you're thinking about next in that in that area, or what's. Do you have any advice for for us on the rest of these CRA votes, or I don't know, you know. <sighs> yeah, I do. So the the sad thing for me at this point is I doubt that there's much left for me to do regarding the CRA of the stream protection rule. Hopefully there are some attorneys looking into that uh, who, who might find legal avenues, but I kind of doubt it. Um, so, you know, moving forward, preventing CRA votes from passing is definitely the way to go. And in retrospect, had we known that Trump was going to win the presidency and that the CRA was a real threat and that the stream protection rule was going to take as long to get finalized as it did, um, we could have done a better job of setting up groundwork with key legislators to convince them not to vote in favor of these CRAs. We lost the stream protection rule CRA vote, but we didn't lose it by a huge margin. Uh, and there were senators especially that if we had had enough time, we could have persuaded to vote otherwise. So folks working on other rules that are threatened by the CRA, uh, they should start immediately, you know, visit uh, various congressional <clears throat> districts strategically, get uh, the public to be contacting their representatives and, and try to change these votes. I know where Capito stands on this issue, but how about Manchin? Uh, Manchin voted in favor as well. He, uh, yeah, he he was not going to swing. 
Um, the two Tennessee senators, we were disappointed that they both voted in favor of the CRA, but both Virginia senators uh, voted no against the CRA. Um, but there were a couple, couple random people like uh, Claire McCaskill, uh, who is a Democrat and doesn't really live in a coal mining state who voted in favor of it. So people like that who are unexpected, you know, we could have put more effort into. Did you guys pick up any Republicans? Um, I don't, maybe one or two. I, I actually, I can't remember. But mostly it was a party line vote. Yeah, hard times. BLM planning 2.0. Party line is, uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, that uh, the BLM planning 2.0 reg CRA vote in the Senate, I think, is going to be next week. So if you haven't contacted your senators yet, please do. OutdoorAlliance.org. Check it out. So, Aaron, a couple other questions. I, I know you've done some stream monitoring and things all over the area for quite a bit. What are some of the what are some of the worst things you've seen? What are some of the worst case scenarios you've seen out there? Well, how depressing do you want me to get? <laughs> uh, Bring it on. One one thing that I that I run into uh, fairly often is damage to private wells. And sometimes we're successful there uh, in, in getting those situations dealt with. So ideally, the way that it should work is that a homeowner might have a private well and a surface mine comes in and that well water quality deteriorates. And basically, the state agency tells the coal company that they need to pay to provide a clean drinking water so source to the homeowner. Uh, in actuality, a lot of the times people don't have sufficient background data uh, or or enough lawyers compared to the coal company lawyers to really prove that it was definitely the coal mine that caused the water deterioration. So there are a lot of people in central Appalachia who don't actually have clean water to drink. Um, and, uh, you know, another associated issue there is uh, small municipal water treatment facilities just basically having failing infrastructure, having drinking water sources that require a lot of treatment that they can't afford or can't do adequately. So, uh, we, you know, we're not just talking about fish here. We're, we're also talking about impacts to human beings. Crazy. You're right there seeing it all the time, huh? How yeah. How, how many people do you guys have out uh, doing that kind of readings on the water and taking samples? Right now, there are three of us within Appalachian Voices and a few others with uh, partner local organizations. But in theory, you can also request that state agencies come out and do that monitoring as well. And they often will, but whether they'll really pursue enforcement after they get results is another issue. We have that problem a lot in, uh, in Oregon as well. You know, I think that's something that one of the student organizations at Lewis and Clark where I went to law school, one of the things they would do is they would just go down to the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the state environmental agency is in Oregon, like DEQ or something like that. And mm -hmm. uh, they just go and you just go like look through the files and you can just look at the monitoring results. And it's not hard to find places that have clean water act violations. And then you go, go back to the office and go write them a 60-day notice of intent to see you letter and you send it off to them and you're like, we're going to see you unless you bring your water quality up to standard because it's like the monitoring is there, but the enforcement isn't there. Right. And so it's, you know, it's that disconnect is like, it's like pretty shocking, right? I mean, I was kind of amazed when I first went and did this when I was in law school that, you know, you just walk into the state agency's office and you just look at the results and there's like a file cabinets full of all these companies that are, you know, breaking environmental laws and nobody's doing anything about it. Yep. We pursued a number of cases like that in Kentucky where we went and reviewed state records. They were records that coal companies are required to submit under the Clean Water Act to the state agencies. And basically those records weren't getting reviewed. And what we found is that a lot of them were falsified. They were, they were duplicated from one quarter to the next and not duplicated very well. Uh, you know, just I think it was something like 47 measurements that were required on each report and all 47 were identical from one quarter no. to the next, uh, which doesn't take, doesn't take anyone with uh, a whole lot of brains to, 
identify that issue. And so we had a couple of big cases in Kentucky over that. So who's, so who's the biggest who's the biggest polluter in Appalachia? Like who's the who's like a, who who wears that well, crown? <laughs> um, that's a hard one because there's so many variables. All I guess I, I like would who would make say, the Hall of Fame? Who would make the Hall of Fame? Sure. So the Hall a Hall of Fame <laughs> contender would certainly be a company called Fraser Creek. Yeah. And they they were a Kentucky company, and they at one time were, I think, the second largest producer of surface coal in Kentucky. And they were one of the companies that we found duplicating records. And so we sued them one time, and they, they got a violation through the state. They cleaned up their act for a while, and they then started duplicating records again, even worse than before, a few years down the road. So it was pretty, I don't know. Pretty, pretty brave of them to just go right back and doing the same thing. But at that point, they, they weren't having a lot, of, uh, a lot of economic success in Kentucky, and they're actually owned by like, um, a multinational out of India. And so basically, we were able to negotiate a deal with them where they shut down all their mines and they left the state of, state of Kentucky. So they Y'all don't operate West Virginia. there. <laughs> they are still <laughs> Yes, they are. And I'm aware of that. Come on. <laughs> so Aaron, where can we learn more about Appalachian Voices? Do you have any kind of newsletter that people can sign up to? Do they follow you on Facebook? How does it work? Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, social media for me, I would do Twitter. Uh, my Facebook is largely kayaking. <laughs> um but I would also just go to our website. It's appvoices, A-P-P-V-O-I-C-E-S dot org. Uh, and also ilovemountains.org is another website we run. Both have email lists. Both uh, cover quite a bit of our work. Very cool. Very cool. That's, you know, I don't even really know what to say about all that stuff. It's just, eh, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, changing subjects, Aaron, let's talk about Jerry's Battle. You are the organizer oh, yeah. of a multi-sport race called Jerry's Battle, which is mm-hmm. a run down the Green River and then a road bike race. John Weld, you should come down for this one sometime. Yeah, it seems like right up my alley. Yeah, come down and you know, namaste here in Asheville or whatever. So what's new for the uh, Jerry's Battle this year? Well, we're going into, I think it's our 13th year, my second year being in charge of organizing. Um, So it's become a a well-known and well-loved event, so we're trying not to change too much because it works pretty well. Uh, But we do want to see everyone come out. We We need some new folks taking on the challenge. Some of the rest of us are getting old and have a lot of other obligations. Um, I think... I don't know, Grace, can, can we announce our, our idea that we have? Yes, we certainly can. We certainly can, so go for it. Great. So uh, now there's also the Silverback, with which John organizes, and it's about a month after Jerry's Battle. So they're a great set to kind of train for together, and we're going to crown, I think we're going to call it the uh, Blue Ridge Champion, uh, for best combined time for both events. Um, so come out and prove that you're the fastest person for running the Narrows, road biking, mountain biking, and trail running. Uh, it's going to so. be Brad Key, so let's just go ahead and... <laughs> my, mo- my money's on Jay Diddy if he, uh, if he comes right. back to racing right. this year. Uh, <laughs> how, many, how much climbing is that road bike ride? Uh, 2000-ish. I think it's more than that, but maybe total, I think total gain is over that, but it's, it's totally doable. Yeah, we do a cycle bus ride. ride here in Confluence that's 50 miles and 10,000 feet of climbing. It's called I the sick bird. about this. I the keep hearing about this. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta come to the well, I, I should add, Jerry's Battle is actually a fundraiser for North Carolina ALS Foundation. So you're coming out to support a good cause. Um, and the race is in honor of Jerry Beckwith, who is a Green River, River local who uh, 
had ALS, passed away from it uh, quite a few years back. But his family still comes out to the event. They were there last year. So it's a really great uh, way to, to remember a good friend of a lot of folks at the Green and to raise money for a really good cause. Do we give gear to that? Hmm? Well, let's, do, we give, let's, do we give gear to that event? Let, let's talk about that, John. We should talk about that. <laughs> we do, don't we? I should have brought it up if we don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, heads are going to roll, I assure you. <laughs> no, no, I, I think you guys do, here. but, but, but we, right, we can God. get in touch. Uh, very good. All right, well, Aaron, thanks for all that. Real quick, before we end our show today, and uh, we got some rants and raves. Aaron, every every show we do, we rant on something or we rave on something. And uh, this is the most ill-conceived part of the show. I want to point out. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. I it's the only thing we do every week, and we never yeah. think about it before. But it's like, great because. I'm raving about waffles. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. <laughs> They're delicious. Uh, all right, let's let's let Aaron let's put Aaron on the spot. Aaron, you're in the hot seat. You got a rant or a rave on anything? Make it a rant, like you're angry. Yeah, I get pissed. Yeah. Oh, uh, gosh, what am I really pissed about? I mean, I'm pretty pissed about the CRA. It's a really terrible law. Because, you know, you get rid of all these rules and there's weird language in there where we may never be able to write a similar rule again. Nobody knows what's going on. It's, it's, it's bad news. It was, it was ill-conceived when they wrote this law. And I think, I think there are going to be serious consequences from it. Sorry. That's a, that's a good one. All right. That's a good one. Well, what you got? Uh, <sighs> shit. Well, I'm going to rave on the Mac no because I've never paddled it. <laughs> there we go. But Robert's my friend and he's mad at me. So I'm just going to get a Mac no. It rocks. <laughs> oh, man. What do you got, Lewis? Um, I'm pretty fired up that everything's thawing. I'm, I'm like ready for spring. I'm going to rave on spring. There's still a lot of snow outside the house, but I see some grass. We went and rode our bikes yesterday, and it was probably four inches of snow, but it was new snow. It wasn't snowpack anymore, so that was that was welcome. I'm ready for spring. Well, I'm gonna rave about Utah, about Alta, Utah, where I'm going on Tuesday for a week of skiing. Not boycotting Utah, dude. You're going out to Utah to spend a bunch of money. God, no. Well, I you books, not buy you books. Any better? I'm bringing like a peanut butter and jelly on the roof. I'm going with this this, uh, this uh, equally meat-headed friend of mine named uh, Jess Hartman, and we will <laughs> first lift to like last lift and eat nothing but like a peanut butter and jelly and an apple, and just like relentless <laughs> marathon. Yeah, it's gonna be great. And I guess that kind of wraps us up, huh? All right. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Thank you, guys.